If you have your Bibles with you, I would ask you once again to turn to the Gospel of John, the 12th chapter. That should be familiar territory to you by now, as we've spent several weeks in this chapter, and we still have a few left to take. We'll be looking this evening at, or excuse me, this morning at verses 27 to 36, as Jesus tells us that the Son of Man must be lifted up. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make your word clear to us. By the power of your spirit, you may do that, Lord. You can encourage us, equip us. You can help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask even now, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see Jesus. This we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. The second half of John's gospel, as we have said, focuses on Jesus' last week, with particular attention on the cross. How much do we think about the cross? How much does the cross affect the way that we live daily? How much does the cross affect the way we view God? This morning, we will look at the last recorded public teaching of Jesus 
before his death. And so it should be no surprise to us at all then that the subject that Jesus brings up (coughs) is the cross. By looking to the cross, (coughs) we see the most important things. We see first that the cross shows us God. Second, we see that the cross shows us the world. And then third, we see that the cross shows us a choice. The cross revealing to us God, the world, and a choice. Let's begin then by looking at how the cross shows us God. Our passage this morning begins with Jesus telling us that his soul is troubled. And this word reminds us that Jesus is truly human. It's not just that Jesus is a bit anxious, that he's waiting for something to happen. It means that Jesus is disturbed. That's what the word means. He's experiencing an anguish of soul. Now, we might ask, why is that the case? After all, Jesus is God. Doesn't Jesus know everything? Doesn't Jesus know how all of this is going to work out? We could understand how his disciples are concerned and anxious because they don't know what's going to happen. We can even think from our perspective, we're waiting for events to to occur. But Jesus knows that after his death, he will rise again. Jesus knows he will ascend to heaven. Jesus knows all of this. So why would he be troubled? This is why we need to remember exactly who Jesus is. Yes, Jesus is God. So he knows everything that is about to happen. But Jesus is also truly man. And the thought of what he would suffer brings him trouble. What causes Jesus' trouble? Well, our first answer might be the horrible suffering that he would go through. Remember, there is much more than physical suffering that is coming. Jesus is not merely a martyr who will die a cruel death to inspire people to live better lives. Jesus is not going to suffer to give us an example of how to deal with our own suffering. Jesus knows that he's going to experience the wrath of God for sin. And this is beyond what we could imagine. Jesus had never known sin. He had never disobeyed the Father. And yet Jesus knows, because He is God, that a holy God cannot bear to look upon sin. Jesus knows the price to be paid. It's a price beyond description. We know that for each sin that we commit, it merits eternal, unending punishment. 
And if we stop and think for a moment how many sins we commit day upon day, week upon week, month upon month, that puts this in a different perspective. And then when we think that there are billions of people on the earth today, it gives us still a greater perspective. And that still doesn't account for the many, many more people that have lived on earth over the thousands of years. Jesus, the one who knew no sin, will be made sin for us. That's what Paul tells us. Jesus will be made a curse for us. The Father will pour out His wrath on the Son. The Father will look away from the one who has dwelt with Him from all eternity. And this shows us something essential about God. God is perfectly holy. He cannot excuse sin. Not because He doesn't want to but because to excuse sin would make him not God. Sin deserves the judgment and wrath of God. All sin. There is no explaining it away. And Jesus knows this. Better than we could. And that's why he is troubled. Jesus' trouble shows us that God is holy. We make a habit of minimizing and excusing sin. We talk about our little lies or the mistakes that we make. Do you see the blackness and the horror of sin? You can see it in the Savior's reaction. The God-man is troubled by the price of sin. Will you continue to minimize that price? And pretend that God doesn't care about your sin? When Jesus points us to the cross, he shows us God is holy. But Jesus goes on and shows us something else about God. In his anguish, he goes to the Father in prayer. And this is reminiscent of the Garden of Gethsemane. What shall I say, Jesus says? Should I ask my Father to save me? Should I abandon my purpose? Jesus is going to his Father in prayer. What should I do? Now, if it were us, we love finding a way out, don't we? You get caught speeding and you say, Isn't there an online class I can take that will wipe away that ticket? We get a bad grade in a class. And we ask, isn't there some sort of extra credit we can do to cancel that out? Don't you drop the lowest grade? You see, we want to find a way to sweep it under the rug or out the door entirely. But Jesus answers his prayer question for our benefit. Look at verse 27. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. See how he responds to this trouble. I am not going to shrink back. I am not going to change my mind. This is the only way to resolve sin and save my people. And so I must go forward. That's what Jesus says. Stop and think about that. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
was willing to suffer and die to go forward for your sake. Not for some vague notion of world peace. Not for a better world. But for you. He knew that the only way for you, believer, the only way you could be freed from sin and death was for him to suffer on the cross. Do you see this, Savior? But we cannot set the Son against the Father. Some who are appalled by the cross explain that a cruel father forced the Son to pay the price. And as we look here at the interchange between the Son and the Father, that corrects that way of thinking. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. Jesus is focused on the Father's glory. This should not surprise us at this point, because Jesus' whole life was lived to glorify the Father. What Jesus is saying here is that he loved the glory of God more than his own soul. More than he feared the suffering to come. He found strength to face the cross because he desired the glory of God. And the father responds in a way that shows his love. In verse 28, the voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Now, this, this itself is remarkable. There are only three times that we hear the Father speak in this way. Once at the baptism of Jesus, once at the transfiguration of Jesus, and here in John 12. And what they have in common, at first glance it doesn't look like there's anything in common. They're at the beginning, the middle, the end of his ministry. What they have in common is in each instance, the Father is revealing who Jesus is, and what he came to do. And so the Father says, I have glorified it. That is, I have glorified my name. How has the Father glorified his name? In the sending of Jesus. That's how he glorifies his name. The mission and work of Jesus, redeeming sinners, glorifies God. You see, God is not opposed to Jesus. The, the Father is not tricking the Son. He's not compelling the Son. The Father, in conjunction with the Son and the Spirit, is redeeming a people for love. Of course, the next part of that statement is, and I will glorify it again. Now, what does God mean by this here? Does he mean in the building of the church? I don't think so. Does he mean even in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? I don't think so. I think here he's saying, I will glorify my name in the cross. The cross will bring glory to God. The cross shows us that the holy, perfect God is a God of love. He does not change who he is. He glorifies his name in the ultimate work of love. God so loved the world. How? 
How did he show his love to the world? By sending his only son. Do you ever doubt God's love to you? That can happen because we're sick. And we wonder if God loves us because we face difficulties. Or it can happen if our children are rebellious. And we wonder whether God cares because we have consternation and difficulty in our family. Or perhaps you're sitting there saying, I don't have a spouse that I want. I've wanted a spouse for so long. Or I don't have a child that I want. I've wanted a child for so long. Or maybe you're saying, I didn't get into the school I wanted to get into. My whole life is going to be a mess. Look to the cross. The cross shows you in the clearest way that God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. So that you could be with him forever. Then we see why it is important to look to the cross. The cross shows us who God is. A holy God who loves his people and who saves them. But it also shows us the response of the world to God and his work. The cross shows us the world. Now I've just told you we need to look to the cross and respond with thanksgiving and with trust. But that's not what we see here in our text. The crowd does not understand what is happening. John tells us that what they heard was thunder. Now it's remarkable in its similarity to what the people heard when Jesus spoke to Saul in Acts chapter 9. Paul actually recounts that and says no one else understood. They only heard the sound of thunder. So what is going on here? I think what we see here is that they do not have spiritual ears to hear. But that makes Jesus' statement in verse 30 even more interesting. Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now how is this so? Only Jesus heard the voice. They just told us they didn't know what was being said. They only heard the thunder. And after all, Jesus does not need the confirmation of the Father, now any more than in any other occasion in his life. Jesus was perfectly confident of his mission. His will was perfectly aligned with the Father. Jesus did not need an attaboy here. So why does Jesus say it comes for your benefit, not mine? It is a sign and a witness to these people. It's an opportunity for them to repent and come to Jesus. And we see that in the next verse, in verse 31. Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You know, we don't often focus on this when we think of the cross, but we must. The cross tells us that judgment is coming. The cross shows the sinfulness of sin. It shows that sin is no small thing to be ignored. There is no ignoring sin. We can't think that only the worst people in the world will be judged by God. This is 
the mentality of most of the world. Most of the world will acknowledge that there are people who are very dedicated to God. Extremists. They read their Bible every day. They bother to go to church every week. They actually pray every day. They actually think the Bible is true. And then there's another set of small people, small group of people, like Adolf Hitler and Stalin and molesters, truly wicked people. And God is going to judge them for their wickedness. But all the rest of us in the great middle, God's pretty much okay with us. As long as the good things we do outweigh the bad things we do, we don't have to fear judgment. God's happy with us. He wants to be with us. After all, we say good things about God occasionally. We actually might do some good deeds. And what the world thinks is this vast middle will not be judged. But the cross shows us the horror of this judgment. Even Jesus was troubled. If Jesus is troubled by the incoming judgment of sin, how could you think that you would survive the judgment of sin? You know, there is a great deal of foolishness that has been said for many, many, many generations. It's people who think that there will be partying in hell. They'll think, well, I'm not religious and don't want to be religious and don't want to be with God, but that's okay. God can send me to hell. I'll party it up with my buddies. We'll go drinking and carousing and shoving, and it'll be a good old time, just like a wild Saturday night. The Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible knows hell is a place of unending, consuming punishment that is never completed. That is the judgment that comes. The cross points you to that judgment. The second thing that Jesus said is that the devil's day is over. The ruler of this world will be cast out. And the ruler of this world is the devil, not by right, but by rebellion and usurpation. That's why Paul calls the devil the god of this world and the prince of the power of the air. The devil is not truly the master of this world, but he has usurped authority. He has used sin to get into the lives of people and to destroy them. Now, the irony here is that the devil is enjoying what is going on. He thinks he is winning. Jesus is getting closer and closer and closer to death. And Satan believes that will be his great victory. That the cross will be the time of his greatest victory and enjoyment. Can you imagine Satan and his minions while Jesus hung on the cross? They were sure that they had overcome God, that God had been defeated, that they could never be stopped now, that they could feast on the tears and the pain and the suffering of all humanity forever. But Jesus tells us otherwise. The ruler of this world is cast out. 
And Jesus tells us this to remind us that he has overcome the world. We need reminders that we do not need to fear the world and the devil because Jesus has overcome them. Just like we cannot be neutral with Jesus, we cannot forget that Jesus has won the victory through the cross. But not all the world is condemned by the cross. Jesus shows us that the cross is also a source of hope for the world. First, he indicates what kind of death he would face. In verse 33, he explains that when he is lifted up in verse 32, it would be the kind of death by which he was going to die. He would be lifted up. This is not the first time we've seen this. Jesus uses this language in John 3. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then again, in John 8, he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Now, there's a double meaning to this. He would be physically lifted up on the cross. But he would also be exalted by the cross. He would glorify the Father in the cross. The cross is not the bad part that we need to get through to get to the empty tomb. It's not something we should forget about and focus on the resurrection. The cross is the glorious answer to the problem of sin. It is the theater of God's love. And then Jesus describes the result of the cross in verse 32. That he will draw all people to himself. All people will come to Jesus through the cross. Now what does that mean? Well, it can't mean that everyone is saved and that all will come to Jesus. Because after all, Jesus has just said that judgment is coming. And if everyone is going to come to Jesus, who will there be to judge? So that can't be what he means. If everyone is forgiven, Jesus' previous statement cannot be true. It has to mean that all kinds of people will come to Jesus. That he is the only Savior for anyone. No matter whether you are old or young or Asian or African or European or American. No matter what language you speak. No matter what you've done. There's only one Savior and that's Jesus. And there's only one place of salvation and that's the cross. Everyone, all who will be saved will come to Jesus at the cross. The cross is the only way to come to Jesus. And Jesus is the only way to come to the Father. The cross is Jesus' greatest triumph and glory. It's the cross that draws people to Jesus. Not social justice, not education, not laws, not rules. All will be saved by looking to the cross. And that means you must look. Faith is absolutely necessary 
for you to be saved. And that means that you must look to the cross and trust that on that heinous instrument, Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. That you are forgiven, not because God has turned a blind eye to your sins, but because they have been paid in full. That God would be unjust to punish you. That would be double punishment for the same sin. It is already paid in full. Jesus has resolved the sin of his people. He has borne it and satisfied it. And that also means that you must point others to the cross. Our message must be that of the cross. That's the church's message. The church's message is not how you can have your best life. The church's message is not how your marriage can be marvelous. The church's message is not how to bulletproofly raise your children. The church's message is Jesus saves on the cross. That's our message. And it's a message we take in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our universities, and in our families. We go to the cross. Now that message won't be acceptable to many people. Just as it wasn't when Jesus preached it. But we must follow our Savior and point the way to Him. That brings us to our final point. The cross shows us a choice. Jesus asks us, will you stay in darkness? Now we see this first in the questions that the people bring to Jesus. The crowd still did not understand that the path to victory was through the cross. Over and over again, we have seen this. I don't just feel like I know I'm repeating myself. Over and over again in this gospel, John has shown us that what they expected and wanted was a conquering Messiah. Someone who would lift them up and give them power and dispel their enemies. And they wanted Jesus to win the day and hand over power to them. Because they had forgotten what God's word taught. Daniel, who spoke of the Son of Man, whose kingdom would be without end, with glory and power, also said that the Son of Man would be cut off and have nothing. Isaiah, who describes the Savior in the temple of God as one who is glorious in holiness, prophesied that the Lord would crush him. And his soul would make an offering for guilt. You see, the people here were looking for a way to glory without the cross. And so Jesus responds with a choice. He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now this is right in line with what Jesus had told them about all people being drawn to him. These people and you 
are faced with a choice. You can respond to Jesus, look to the cross, and walk in the light. Or you can stay in the darkness. Now that may sound very un-Presbyterian. But it actually is very Presbyterian. Because it's biblical. Notice how Jesus describes the darkness. First, the one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. He needs a correction. He needs a change. He needs someone to come and bring him out of the darkness. And secondly, see that the darkness is not passive. You know, it's as if we were to say, the dusk is out there this afternoon, but I'm just going to hang out here. I can't see so well, but that's okay. There's enough light in the dusk for me to make things out. As if it's not going to get darker and blacker and deeper as the night goes on. You see, the darkness isn't passive. Jesus tells us it overtakes you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The darkness wants to consume you. You can't be complacent with your life and soul. You can't assume everything will be fine. And so Jesus presents the choice in the clearest of terms. He says, the light will not be here forever. You need to act now. Believe in the light, Jesus says. That's the way that you become sons of light. There is no time to wait. Jesus is telling you that if you do not turn to him, look to the cross and believe in the light, you will sink more and more into the darkness. We so often think we have plenty of time. The phone that's on sale this week, oh, it'll be on sale next month. Maybe even cheaper. And which of us hasn't had this experience? When you go to a car dealership and you have questions about a car and you want to ask about a car and want them to explain what the options are and the pricing and all this other stuff is, and the salesman looks at you and he says, what color do you like? Because what he wants is, he wants you to take that car, that hour, off that lot. And if you're anything like me, you respond by saying, I don't need to buy a car today. There's going to be more cars next month. If I wait a year, there's going to be more cars next year. There's going to be other sales. I'm not going to miss the deal of a lifetime. You can't pressure me into making this decision now. We might say, you know, there's always another semester we could enroll in school. We don't have to give up on college dreams forever, but I'm not ready now. But that is not the case with the state of your soul. Today is the day of salvation, the scripture says. You are not promised tomorrow. Let me ask you, dear people, how many sermons have you heard? Hundreds? Thousands? Tens of thousands? How many more Will you hear? How many stories, kids, have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard about the loaves and the fishes? Have you heard about the walking on water? Have you heard about the Mount of Transfiguration? 
Have you heard about Jesus at the wedding? How many more will you hear? You see, there is a danger here, especially for those who are in the church. We think there's always time to get serious about Jesus. I can wait till next week. We could be in John 12 or we could be in John 13, and I know the pastor's going to talk about Jesus. I could wait till next week or next month. That's the pastor's job. He's got to keep telling me about Jesus. But God doesn't have to give you that time. He doesn't have to give you ears to hear. He doesn't have to give you life to act on. Now is the time to get serious about Jesus. Jesus is telling you today to look to the cross. The cross is where you will see and know God for who He is. The cross is where you will understand your need and your hope. And the cross presents you with the greatest questions of your life. Will you believe in Jesus? Will you trust Him? Jesus knew that death awaited him. Do you? Jesus knew how victory over death was accomplished. Do you? Look to the cross and see the Savior who loves you and who died for you. Look and be saved.